If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Zechariah chapter 13, please. Zechariah 13 and 14. It's the last two chapters of our verse-by-verse exposition. Zechariah just um, has finished describing the repentance of the conversion of the remnant of Israel through the spirit of grace and supplication at the close of chapter 12. Chapter 13 is the continuation describing the outcome of the repentance to a life of purity and sanctification devoted to Yahweh. And so in chapter 13, verse 1 through 6, you have the cleansing and purification of idolatry. Again, the end of chapter 12, they've repented. Individually, as we left off there. Verse um, 1 says, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Now, the provision for forgiveness from sin uh, is for the remnant here that again looks back to verse 12. The context is still in that day. Notice the end of the great tribulation. The second coming to establish the kingdom age. Three times it appears in this chapter. Verse 1, verse 2, and verse 4. Some very good Bible expositors and scholars believe verse 1 should be the last verse of chapter 12. And that's a pretty good division. Um, It could go with it. I see it more as a transitional verse. Verse 1 looks back to the repentance and conversion and it looks forward to the consequences of that conversion. So I see it more like a transition, but you could take verse 1 and add it to the last of the previous chapter. Again, the division of verse and chapter is not inspired by the Spirit of God. It's just men made it many years afterwards so that we can locate things. And for the most part, the divisions are pretty good. Sometimes they can be adjusted a verse or maybe in an entire section. Um, So I give you both of them. The foundation is opening to the house. Notice here, the fountain of the house of David. The inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. The idea is um, symbolic of spiritual cleansing here from their sins. Um, uncleanness by the spirit of grace as we pointed out in chapter 12, verse 10 through 11. The word is um, a cleansing agent. Jesus says you are cleansed by the words I have spoken unto you. Uh, in John 15, 3, to his disciples, um, Ephesians 5, 26, the bride is presented without spot, wrinkle, any such thing, by the washing of the water, by the word, and we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and forgives our sin, and cleanses from all unrighteousness, First John 1, 7 says. So uh, there's always the, uh, the aspect of washing, a cleansing, a purifying spiritually. The word is uh, the cleansing agent completely, and the idea is atonement and sanctification, that's in mind here. Um, the new covenant that they enter into that we talked about in Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34. This is the remnant. Um, the uh, book of Acts chapter 3, 19 through 21 speaks about the Jewish remnant. Romans 11, Hebrews 9, 10, 9 and 10 speaks about that covenant that will be the laws will be written in their heart. Um, no longer of the law. In verse 2, he says, It shall be in that day says the Lord of hosts, that I will uh, cut off the names of the idols from the land and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophet and the unclean spirit to depart 
from the land. So the purification of the land from idols and demons here, the context is the same. Uh, it shall be in that day. Uh, we're talking about the conversion of, of Israel towards the end of the Great Tribulation. <clears throat> the authority is divine, the highest, um, uh, says the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. And the, um, uh, the Jesus here will cleanse the land of idolatry, uh, cut off the names of the idols. As you know, if you were um, in the world and you had medals and scapulars and different things that you believe had some divine protection over you, this is what he's talking about, different names, you know. Uh, as a Catholic, you had the St. Christopher and St. This and St. That and Virgin This and Virgin That, and you have idolatry going on all the time. And you put your faith in these, these uh, little gods or uh, patron saints, if you will, and that's idolatry. And so uh, here he speaks very, very strict and, and forward to it, um, to cut off their names, whatever, maybe no more pantheism or polytheism, uh, no more amulets of religious superstitions. Um, Paul um, says in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice is sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Remember the Corinthian church that were into the, the temple of Aphrodite and all these uh, rituals and idols. And idols always are associated with sexual sin. You always have idols and sex together. All the Old Testament religions, they were tied together. Asterisk, Baal, Molech, all of them. The church of Corinth, the very same thing, okay? And if you stop and think about it, a girl gives herself to a man when she idolizes him. So what's the ultimate sacrifice? Your priority, right? You give yourself. Idolatry and fornication go together all the time, okay? In other words, you worship someone more than you see your respect for yourself or for the God who created you. And that's when you live apart from God. You live for yourself, for your own senses, for your own pleasure, for whatever it is, and, and, uh, and you'll do anything for that. And so this is all that is being cleansed from the land. Once again, we're there, he's talking about the end of the Great Tribulation, all the stuff that's going on with the Antichrist. Jesus will cleanse the land, notice, from the demonic false prophets. I will also cast out prophets and unclean spirits to depart from the land. Um, then I will sprinkle clean water on you. You should be clean. I will cleanse you from all filthiness and from all your idols. Ezekiel 36, 25 says. And 20, down to 28, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then... You shall dwell in the land that I will give to your father, that I gave to your father. You shall be my people and I will be your God. The fulfillment of this covenant as uh, the remnant now at the end of the tribulation turns to God. Um, we know that in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul says the spirit speaks expressly or clearly that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. In other words, demons teaching through people over the pulpit, declaring themselves to be Christians and teaching wrong doctrine. And so it's very clear that there's always that deception to take you away from God any which way. Many times people, um, they practice syncretism. They call themselves Christians. And under that banner of Christendom, they put all kinds of new age and this and that, and they call it Christianity. No, 
That's syncretism. Many people do that. Okay? And so, in verse 3, he says, It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother uh, who begot him will say to him, You shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord, and his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. So here in verse 3, there will be loyalty to God over family once this conversion comes in. We're talking about the conversion that's going to take them into the millennial kingdom now, where Jesus rules. We saw some of that this morning. And so here again, the loyalty is to the Lord. And so often, if our loyalty, Jesus says, if you don't hate father, mother, or brother more, uh, you're not worthy of me. It doesn't mean that you're to hate them and love Jesus. Or It says that you are to love Jesus more than anyone else. So this way, you are able to love your father, mother, and everybody in the right way. If you don't love Jesus first, then your love for family and, and blood family will be corrupted. Because you will stand by them and defend them when they're wrong. But if you're a Christian, you love God more, you stand for truth and you confront them with truth. The greatest evidence of your love is truth. Not going along with things, not ignoring sin, but dealing with it properly and justly. And so here again, in marks this period of time, um, uh, the parents will put him to death. Um, to the disloyal child here. In verse 4 through 6, the false prophets will be exposed. In verse 4, it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. But he will say, I am no prophet, I am a farmer, for a man taught me to keep sheep from my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Then he will answer, These are which I have wounded. These are with which I have wounded in the house of my friends. Interesting. Verse 4 is the false prophets again being here exposed. In that day, notice in verse 4, the false prophet will not be as courageous or arrogant as um, in the tribulation period. But um, ashamed of their visions and their false prophecy. You know, when, 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 when evil is not confronted, it is arrogant. It boasts. But once it's disciplined, then people kind of shirk back, right? That's just the way it goes. There's only two things that people understand. Pain in their wallet and physical pain. It's real simple in life. Those are two things they do respond to. You see it through scripture. You see it through history. You see it in everyday life. Notice again in that day, the false prophets will not be as bold to display themselves as prophets. They will not wear the robe of coarse hair to deceive. In other words, like Elijah, he wore that, you know, uh, camel's hair inwardly. So it would, it, would, it would agitate him to show his dedication to seeking the Lord, Okay. So now they, they don't wear that because they don't want to be identified as false prophets, okay? Attempting to afflict themselves, but really we're attempting to deceive people. In that day, the false prophets will deny they are such. He says, but he will say, I am no prophet from a farmer, but a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. So they will confess they were frauds. This again is towards the end of the tribulation. This is when 
the remnant is coming to the Lord, okay? There's been many false prophets, false Christ. Um, they acknowledge their deception. Amos uses the same kind of language in Amos 7.14 when the northern kingdom told him to leave. And uh, the high priest of the northern kingdom says, listen, I, I was a sheep breeder. I was a fruit picker. I, I, God called me to be a prophet. So he just uses it on the other side uh, to defend that he didn't send himself. Now they're using it to say, listen, this is what I really was. And then I became false prophet deceiver. So he exposes himself. And that day the prophets will be uh, question verse 6 one will say to him what are these wounds between your arms then he will answer those of which I was wounded in the house of my friends it's an interesting verse this verse has a, two schools of interpretation one applies it to the false prophets alone the other takes it in reference to Jesus Christ now the word is used for self-inflicting wounds as spiritual devotions to deceive, and many prophets did that, okay? The context is the false prophet, but there is no reason why it cannot also apply to Christ because the next verse that we'll see deals with the first coming of Jesus Christ. Ezekiel begins addressing the king of Tyre, if you remember, and then moves on to speak about Lucifer in Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19. He starts with one and he blends into the other. So I don't see any problem here. But there are those two schools of thought. Jesus received the wounds of the scourge and the crucifixion in his hands by his brethren, in the house of his brethren. His friends. So I have no problem addressing and applying this verse to Jesus Christ. Though it was never quoted in the New Testament. Because of the close link, I take this as prophetic of Christ. That he received those wounds in the house of his friends. Jesus um, made this very clear. Jesus received his wounds because they believed he was a false messiah. John twenty twenty five. He makes himself king of the Jews. And Caesar put that over the cross and the Pharisees were mad. They said, don't put he is the king of the Jews. Say he said he's king of the Jews. And what I've written, I've written in your face. He got back to him. Plus the scripture says that they will look upon him whom they have pierced. Zechariah 12.10, Revelation 1.7. And so I have no problem applying verse 6 to the crucifixion, the marks upon Jesus prophetically. Now 7 to 9, you have the smiting of the shepherd and the remnant. In verse 7, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my uh, companion, says the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds of it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested." They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord 
is my God. And so in verse 7, the crucifixion of Christ by Israel, the prophecies about the crucifixion, awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Awake, O sword, that phrase refers to both the exact prophetic time and the end result of his death. It's a prophecy that would come at the exact same time. The death of Jesus was from the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, Peter says in Acts 2.23, fulfilling Isaiah 53.10 and many other prophecies. The speaker notices God the Father calling the Son, my shepherd, emphasizing deity. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd in John 10, 11, and 14. The true shepherd, Zechariah 11, verse 4, down to 14. The prophecy in verse 7 is about the incarnation of God against the man who is my companion. The translators recognize the incarnation, capitalizing the word man, focusing on the humanity of the Messiah to come, Jesus. The phrase, my companion, capitalized, also confirms the incarnation of God. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There you have the emphasis on deity. So you have the God-man, divine and human, 100% of each, not a 50-50 bar. The end of seven, the authority is again the highest, says the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. Notice the prophecy gives the consequences of the crucifixion. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. And when they arrested Jesus on that night, then at the foot of the Mount of Olives, the sheep were scattered. All of them. The disciples and the apostles would be scattered. Matthew 26, 31 quotes it. Mark 14, 27. He would turn his hand over the little ones to protect them, the apostles. Jesus was so faithful and so good to them. In Luke 12, 32, it says, Do not fear, my little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. My little flock. The flock of the Lord is always small. It's not many. The majority is always wrong. Not the minority. About three million came out of the exodus. Only two entered the land over the age of 20. That's pretty slim. The entire world was in unbelief about the judgment to come. Only eight got in the boat. The majority is always wrong, ladies and gentlemen. Always. Verse 8 and 9, you have the persecution of the remnant by the Antichrist. The great slaughter to come. Here in verse 9, two of three Jews will be killed. We are told here. A third is left. This falls under in that day, the great tribulation period, under the persecution of the Antichrist. Revelation chapter 12, Daniel chapter 3, Romans chapter 11. Just to mention a few. 
God will preserve the remnant. Look at verse 9. Jesus will purify the one-third that survives. I will bring one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold. So silver is symbolic of redemption in the scriptures, as you know. Gold is symbolic of purity. God is going to test and purify the remnant through the fire. Isaiah 125, Jeremiah 9, 6, Malachi 3, 3, and many other portions. The whole purpose of the great tribulation and tribulation is to prepare Israel for her Messiah that they rejected the first coming to accept them at his second coming. And Jesus will save them. Look at the end of 9. The remnant will cry out in response to God. They will call on my name. The Messiah, Jesus, will, uh, will hear their cry, and I will answer them. The Messiah, Jesus, will accept them. I will say, this is my people. Remember Hosea 1.9? Lo Amy, not my people. <laughs> the two sisters, north and south. And the remnant will confess Jesus, their Messiah. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. See your houses left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall not see me henceforth to you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Matthew twenty three, thirty eight through thirty nine. They will see the one they pierced and they will mourn. We saw that last week. Wow. In chapter fourteen, one through eight, you have the intervention of Israel for uh, the intervention of Jesus for Israel prior to the kingdom. This morning we did an in-depth study on the chapter. I would encourage you to get it. We'll just go through general commentary. In verse 1 and 2, you have the siege of Jerusalem. This is now a second preview of the same battle that's in chapter 12, but from different perspective. This is the climatic scenes um, before the Lord uh, comes back to the earth. Verse 1 and 2, it says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil, uh, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. That um, the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And so the general statement of God allowing uh, Jerusalem to be besieged here by the nations. Remember, Jesus pronounced judgment. I just read Matthew. Because of the rejection, and there's been constant persecution, constant judgment over them until the Lord returns. Zechariah again calls attention to the time period. Behold, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is an Old Testament term that is burned in the mind and the heart of the Jew. Indignation, wrath, darkness, day of gloom. It's judgment, the period of judgment. The event is affirmed by the unfavorable description. Your spoil will be divided in your midst. The word spoil is plunder. Um, taking the wealth, the resources. Sometimes you find the word booty, but words change and it means a different thing today. It means the spoils, that which you win, the victor goes the spoils. That's what he's talking about here. Now notice in verse 2 the particular statement of God about the siege of Jerusalem. God is the initiator of the siege. 
for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. He brings everything to a head just as he puts the hooks in the jaws of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and draws her down to attack Israel. Now, God does not force people or nations to do the evil. He only knows the evil they will do. So he deals with them in according to that. All right? Otherwise, God would be responsible for the evil he caused you to do, but he did never cause you to do evil. He gives you a choice, and he knows only the choice you will make. And God can use the evil for his glory while yet holding you responsible for the evil you did because you did it free will, and he didn't force you to do it. All right? He's the epitome of holiness. And a holy God, how could he force you to do evil and then try to judge you and say you're condemned when he actually is the author of your evil? It would be inconsistent. All right? And so that kind of drives us crazy, but just get one thing straight. God's always right. We're always wrong. He's holy, and we're always rotten to the bone. All right? It's real simple. Now, verse 2, again, the particular there. Uh, this actually is speaking of the battle of Armageddon. In Revelation 16 and 19, God will allow the city to be occupied. The city shall be taken. They will... Uh, Capture it. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, we're told, in Daniel 2.35, 44 and 45, and also Luke 21.24. Right now is the time of the Gentiles. Remember the head of gold, the arms of silver, the belly of brass, the legs of iron, the last toes of iron and clay, the tenth nation confederacy. That's all the time of the Gentiles, from the head of Babylon, gold, to the ten toes of the Antichrist. Time of the Gentiles. And then it comes to an end. Okay, when that ends, then the second coming comes. And Jesus Christ sets up the kingdom as we saw this morning. Houses will be rifled, meaning plundered, spoiled. The women will be ravished. The word is laid, raped. This is a time of war. It's one of the most inhumane and most animalistic things that men do in times of war. They become like animals. The Bible is a very uh, vivid book. It reveals man for what he is. He's just selfish and sinful and self-centered. I don't know where it is that we get that man is good. The humanist manifesto is incredible. Go online and read it. <laughs> I don't know where they get their evidence. It's impossible to find it here on earth. Half of the city is taken, goes into captivity. The other half will be resisting and standing. In verse um, 3 down to 6, the Lord will come to their deliverance. He says, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. And as he fights in the day of battle, um, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall split in two. From the east to the west, making the very large valley, half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half towards the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azael. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. It's interesting there. What he has just said. We'll look at it right now. 
And in verse 6 says, And it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light, the lights will diminish. Now, look at verse 3. In verse 3, Jesus will fight against the nations. The statement is, As he fought in the days of battle, indicating that he has never lost. Every time God gets involved, he always comes out on top. He defends Israel. He destroys things. He sent one angel out one night and destroyed a 285,000 front line Assyrian troops in one night. No big deal for God. Now he's the call of Lord, uh, the, the Lord is called a man of war through the scriptures, Exodus 15.3. You see him as a man of war with a two-edged sword coming forth from his mouth as he returns in the battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19.11. As he comes back all the way on down. And Jesus will make the grand appearance in verse 4. Something that we get nowhere else. It's interesting. Once again, the day is identified. And in that day, seven times it appears, this last chapter. Verse 4, 6, 8, 9, 13, 20, and 21. You get the context of this chapter? In that day. Chapter 9, 10, 11 and 12 deal with the first coming, with a few reference to the second coming. Chapter 13, uh, 12, 13, and 14 deal with the second coming, with a few references to the first coming. So the context is very, very important as, um, as we study it. Otherwise, you will um, look at it in, in the wrong context and then application is made wrong. And so here it's very, very clear. He's talking about defeating um, the, um, the armies of the world, um, the United Nothings, um, the particular location again on the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem. It faces it as, as you're there in the Mount of Olives. You're facing the Temple Mounts before you, in front of you. Uh, the power effect is described. The mountain will split in two. And as I said this morning, it's interesting that they have found that there's a fault line in the mountain. Not that God needs one to split it in two, but um, it's interesting. Um, he creates a new valley here that goes from there down the Judean wilderness, down by the Dead Sea into the Gulf of Bacaba. Right now, the main, one of the greatest rifts is the African rift that goes all the way from Lebanon all the way down to Africa. A new one's going to be created. Okay, so the topography, the, the land is going to change uh, at the end of the tribulation that initiates the millennial kingdom. Um, Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives, remember, in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. And he took off and the angels rebuked the apostles for standing there gazing, gawking. He says, what are you guys looking up? They're gazing the sky. The same way he left, he's going to come back. And uh, from the very place he left, his foot will touch and he will split it. In verse 5, half of those um, not taken in captivity in the city of Jerusalem will escape through this valley. Um, the particular time is given there. Uh, you will feed through my mountain valley, mine, I made it. For the mountain valley shall reach to Aziel all the way down to Aqaba. And certainly it's related to their past history here. He makes a connection. Um, um, he speaks here. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. So uh, the earthquake is not recorded in the historical books, but it is recorded in the book of Amos, chapter 1, verse 1. 
There's also uh, various earthquakes that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 11:13, when it hits Jerusalem, a tenth of that city falls and many die. There's, a, there's an earthquake that says not a mountain or an island is found. Ooh, that, that's, a, that's not a ten, that's a hundred. Um, incredible, which might be a polar flip. Okay? Which the scientists speak about if there has been polar flips before. I mean, uh, when not a, and a mountain is found, something flips. Um, and then a nugget here in verse 5, Jesus will be returning with his church. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. Now, think about it. He's talking to the remnant. The wife that's been put away. Reconcile, right? And Jesus is coming, the second coming. Who's coming back with him? You and I. We were raptured at the beginning of the tribulation. We're coming back with him. First Thessalonians, Jesus comes back for his church. Second Thessalonians, God comes back with his church to set up the kingdom. So for his church in First Thessalonians, with his church, Second Thessalonians. Very, very clear. God has not appointed us to wrath, but to salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. God will keep us from the hour with the article of great tribulation, Revelation 3, 10. God will remove his bride before the seven years tribulation. Verse 6 through 7, you have the supernatural effect upon um, the light in that day, um, the normal light of the day will be affected. It should come to pass in that day, verse 6, that there will be no light. The light will diminish. It means to condense or be dense. And the day will be distinct from all others. Look at verse um, 7. He says, it, sh it shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening till shall, it shall come that it will be light. So, the day and night will be exactly the same. Now, we know in the Old Testament that he gave a long day to Joshua when he said, sun stand still. We know that Hezekiah asked for the sundown to go back. Okay, so God has intervened miraculously in time, in history. And here again, he's going to do exactly that. In verse 8, we have the living waters from Jerusalem. He says, and in that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea, meaning the Dead Sea, half of them towards the western sea, which is the Mediterranean or the Great Sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. And so once again here, the city of Jerusalem becomes an incredible water source. Once Jesus steps down the Mount of Olives, it will cleave. There will be a, 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 a torn of, 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 of water coming forth. The, the, the mountains are going to be going to see exalted. The, the mountain where the Jerusalem is at compared to the other ones. Um, this is at the start of the millennial kingdom because Ezekiel tells us in Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12, that this incredible water source 
increases in flow and in depth. And he starts, it came to my ankles, then to my knees, then to my hips. Then I, I just swam completely. And that there will be trees and fruit on both sides of the bank for the, every month. And that the lease will be for the healing of, of medicine. Now, when you go to the eternal state of the book of Revelation, you also have that after the millennial kingdom, and you have there also the same thing going on. It's an extension of that. But during the thousand years, there's sin and there's still death. Many times people say, well, you know, when we get in the millennial kingdom, no more tears, no more sorrow. No, no, no. That's the eternal state after the white throne judgment. The thousand years is the millennial kingdom. You and I will be ruling and reigning with Jesus. The people that are allowed to enter in, they will repopulate like right now we're doing, okay? They have to be born again. Longevity will be brought back in. The ferocity of the animals will be taken away. And then at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be let loose. He will, he will tempt the nations. They will rebel against God. God will put them under. Then will be the white throne judgment. Everybody who rejected Jesus Christ will be brought up and judged and cast into the lake of fire. And then after that, we have the new heaven, the new earth that melts away, the new heavens, the heavenly Jerusalem, and we will be with Jesus for the eternal state. And so you have all this stuff that the Bible speaks about. Joel confirms this to be so, as I've spoken here about the torrents of water. It says, and it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with waters. The fountains shall flow from the house of the Lord and water of the valley of Acacia. And so the confirmation through all the prophets of just the, the, the things of eschatology, the end things is what the word means. And the water resource will flow all year round, as it says here in both summer and winter, it shall occur. When you get to verse 9, to 15, you have the exaltation of Jesus in the kingdom here. Um, verse 9, he says, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. And so the supreme reign of Jesus in the millennial kingdom. Um, Hosea has told us, as we saw this morning, For the children of Israel shall abide Many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice, sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. In Hosea 3, 4, the kingdom of this world had become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, we're told in Revelation eleven fifteen, As the Lord comes back in the second coming, he does so to establish the kingdom. The world armies are gathered together to try to stop him. Psalm chapter 2, why do the heathen rage? Why do they imagine a vain thing? I will have them in derision. God will laugh at them. Amazing. In that day, the Lord shall be the Lord's one. His name will be one. The word is a cad, a compound unity of one. An incredible root for the Trinity. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is Elohim. Any Greek... Any Hebrew word ending in an I am is plural. In the beginning, Elohim. Plural. The plurality. Genesis 1.26. And let us make man in our image. God wasn't talking about him and the horny toads. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Deuteronomy, the Shema of Israel. The same word, the Akkad right here. Deuteronomy 6.4-5. A compound unity of one. There's a word 
Yahid, which means absolute one. When a cat is used, it's a compound unity of one. Different words. It's not like our angles. We love our dog, we love our wife, we love our hamburger. I hope there's a difference. Okay? Other languages are more expressive, they're more detailed, and certainly the Hebrew and the Greek are. And so, one day everything will be put under his feet, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. When the thousand years is over, he will handle and hand over the kingdom to the Father, and then God will be all in all in the eternal state. In verse 10 through 11, you have the transformation of the land, the millennial, like I said, the topography will change. Um, verse 10, he says, And all the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimna, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in the place of Benjamin's gate, in the place of the first gate, in the corner gate, and from the tower of Hamamiel to the king's winepress. So here in verse 10, he's talking about the Judean wilderness. It'll be made a plain all the way down by the Dead Sea to the Gulf of Aqaba. Um, uh, the Giba to Rimna, the south, the plain there is, is the whole Jordan Valley that is talking about. Giba is the city of Benjamin, about six miles north, east of Jerusalem. Rimna is a town about 35 miles in the south portion of Judah that's allotted to Simeon. So from the north a little bit of Jerusalem all the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba. A new rift, all this God will do, the topography will change. The city of Jerusalem will be raised up, elevated. Right now, if, we, if I was sitting here in the Mount of Olives and I was looking at the Temple Mount at the back of the sanctuary, uh, I would find that the Mount of Olives is a lot taller than the Temple Mount. We're looking down on the Temple Mount. But in this day, it's going to elevate the Temple Mount completely. It'll be higher than all Mount Scopus and the Mount of Olives. And also the land will be changed all completely It'll be made wider and expanded because the temple that will be there in Ezekiel 40 to 48 is so huge, it would never fit there right now. He's going to change so that temple, which is huge, will fit there. It will be expanded completely. And so, um, Micah 4, 1 and 2 um, says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains of the Lord house shall be established on the top of the mountains here again the confirmation taller than all and shall be exalted above the hills and the people shall flow to it many nations shall come come and say come and let us go up to the mountains of the lord to the house of god of jacob he will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his path for out of zion the law shall go forth and the word of the lord from jerusalem so the Lord is going to be ruling, reigning. He's going to be instructing. He's going to be governing. Jerusalem will be the capital of the world. Economically, religiously, politically. There will be no other. He will rule supremely. The Gentiles will serve the Jew very, very clearly. We're going to see as we move on at the end, all the wealth of the Gentiles will be brought into Israel. Now, maybe you're not going to like that. Well, you can take it up with the Lord, okay? Um, in verse 11, it says, The people shall dwell in it, and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And so, um, once the Lord comes, 
Uh, he's the Prince of Peace. Again, Micah chapter 4, 3 through 8 tells us that forever it will be saved. The Prince of Peace, Isaiah chapter 9. And though we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we know it will never happen until the Prince of Peace comes. There is no way. There is such a hatred for the Jew today. There is such a hatred for Israel. And let me say that a lot of that is inside the church. There isn't one Christian that should ever be anti-Semitic. If they are, they're not reading their Bible correctly. Now, we're not saying that we should approve any atrocities that are done by Israel today. We're not talking about that. But I'm wise enough to know not to mess with God's elect. Okay? It's just that simple. Verse 12 through 15, the Lord will punish the foes of Israel. In verse 12 it says, and, and this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. So God doesn't take kindly to the attack of Jerusalem. It was a free city for the first time in 1967. We've seen that before in the past studies, okay? And the city is an incredible city. It has so many kinds of people, and yet Israel honors all who come there and does not allow or force the Arabs to fight against their brethren. They're excluded from military service, but they give them full citizenship of Israel if they want. Try to be a citizen of an Arab country as a Christian or a Jew. Let's see how they welcome you. It's a one-way street like the progressive liberals here. No different. Anti-Semitism comes from the pit of hell, ladies and gentlemen. It's demonic. Absolutely. And so, their, fresh, their flesh shall dissolve. God deals shrewdly and quickly while they stand in their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. Pretty severe to me. But, Justly, because of the hatred and because of how they dealt with the Jews during the Great Tribulation. Read Matthew 25. The judgment of the nation is how they dealt with the Jew during the Great Tribulation. The context, you visited me in prison, you gave me a cold cup of water, is usually given to missionaries. and eh, you failed Bible class. The context is, how you treated the Jew during the Great Tribulation. That's not for missionaries. Completely out of context. And so the devastation here. The Lord will be uh, bewilder his foes in verse 13. He says, It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic of the Lord will be among them. Everyone shall seize the hand of a neighbor and raise his hand against his own hand. So in other words, civil war. They turn against each other. Um, God did this against the enemies of Israel in the book of Judges and Samuel, Second Chronicles, many other times. God is faithful to take care of his own. In verse 14, Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel, and great abundance. There you have one of many verses. Verse 14, the Jerusalem is the city of Jerusalem in Jerusalem, Israel. Nowhere else. The context is Israel. All prophecy 
is related to Israel and Jerusalem, ladies and gentlemen. Not New York, not Los Angeles, not Chicago, but Israel and Jerusalem. Read it well. Gold, silver, apparel, great abundance. It's all brought into the Jew for the millennial kingdom. Wow. The plague will strike the animals also in verse 15. Um, Such also shall be the plague on the horse, the mule, on the camel, and the donkey, and on all the cattle that will be on those camps, so shall the plague be. In other words, this is warfare. God is destroying the enemy. And listen, God can create animals all over again. It's no big deal. God didn't die for animals. God died for sinners like you and I. He died for the human race. You understand? Animals don't have spirits. Okay? Treat them well. Feed them. Take care of them. Bathe them. Don't worship them. Do not treat them like animals. Don't be like those people that have their little dogs in a little buggy going down the mall with a little bonnet on them or something and even a, a whatever. It just um, drives me crazy. Let's move on before I get in trouble. <laughs> Verse 16 to 21, you have the universal worship now of Jesus in the kingdom. Verse 16 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king and the Lord of hosts and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So, let's kind of put it together. The Great Tribulation, the last three and a half years, bad time. We're at the end period where the last attack and battle is toward Jerusalem. Jesus comes and defends it. Those who survive it, those who pass the, the, the judgment of the nations in Matthew 25 are now allowed to enter the thousand-year reign to repopulate the earth. There will be sin. There will be death. If a child dies at 100, he dies young, Isaiah says. Longevity will be put back there. The lamb will lay down with the lion next to the lion, not in the lion. It will be just like pre-Adamic, but not completely because there's sin and death. There was not sin and death pre-Adamic. It came after. So even though there is a change and alteration of topography and in the animal kingdom... There will still be sinners living through those thousand years. At the end, there will be a great rebellion of the nations as Satan is loose. God will put them down. There's the white throne judgment and everyone who's ever rejected Jesus will be judged and cast into the lake of fire. We, the church, are ruling and reigning with Jesus. We have nothing to do with this. We don't go through this again. Okay? Very, very clear. And so here they come to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles three times. Every Jew had to present themselves the Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, three times a year by law. This uh, also reminds them of the celebration of thankfulness of God providing water through the wilderness. And, um, and Jesus celebrated that in the Gospel of John. As he cried that day, he stood up and he said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me. For out of his animals being shall gush torrents of living water. That last day when they brought no water from the pool of Siloam to the pool of Hylon, of Gihon, he stood up. Because Jesus said, you are still thirsty. You're in the land, but you're still thirsty. I'm the one that quenches your spiritual thirst. And so verse 17 says, It shall be that 
um, whichever of the families of the earth do not come into Jerusalem to worship the king and the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, on them there will be no rain. And that's the blessing and the cursing, as you know, um, of the law. There is um, uh, rain or lack of rain. Um, uh, Deuteronomy 27 and 28, the blessings and cursings. Leviticus 26 also mentions that. And so here again, if there's the rebellion and willingness because there's free will even in the kingdom age by those who repopulate it, um, there are consequences. God will deal with it very directly. Jesus is ruling there uh, completely. Um, and so here in verse 18, um, he, um, if the families of Egypt, and he takes Egypt as an example here, um, he says, will not come up and enter in. They shall have no rain again. They shall receive the plague by which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the feast of tabernacles. So he will deal very promptly, very speedily. And they shall be, um, this shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the feast of tabernacles. And so, um, again, you think that that after the great tribulation and after going through the white, through the judgment of the nations, the sheep and the goat, and they're allowed to go in, you think that they would comply, they would obey. Nope. Because the problem is not the environment. People today, the shrink, say, ah, well, you know, it's the environment and you are what you are because, you know, you had a bad daddy, you didn't have a daddy, you had three mommies or whatever it is. Well, I think the millennial kingdom is simply to say that the problem is not the environment. The problem is the heart. Now, the environment may facilitate you, but it doesn't make you evil. It just helps you to be evil. And it makes you able to excuse yourself and justify yourself, but not before God. The problem of you and I is our heart. Not the environment. And so we'll be in the kingdom age. Absolutely. And so in verse 20 to 21, you have the nature of the kingdom. <clears throat> it is that of holiness to the Lord. And that day, holiness of the Lord shall be engraved in the bells of the horses. The pots of the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. Everyone whose sacrifice shall come and take them and cook them. And that day there should no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. So in other words, no unclean person, no unrepented sinner. There will be no slack cut to anybody. But it's going to be great safe place, great peace. The only ones that get whacked are the guilty people, right? What is our greatest frustration in our society today? Evil people don't get punished. They get rewarded today. It's the people who are law-abiding that end up paying the price today because we call evil good and good evil. We've come into a place of relativism. We've done away with morals. We've done away with ethics. We've done away with right and wrong. Everything is subjective. Everything is everybody else's fault. 
sooner or later, it will break down. The mitre of the high priest when he went to the temple in Exodus 28, uh, 5 through 6, it said, holiness unto the Lord. Everything will be holiness unto the Lord, from the animals, the horses, to the things in the temple, to the very things that are common in the life during those thousand years. And so uh, the sacrificial system will be put in place again. The temple will be there that Christ will put there. And I didn't even bring up, but if you were in our study of the millennial kingdom, David, David will also reign with Jesus. It's not just that Jesus reigns. There are scriptures that Jesus cannot be the fulfillment of. And if you have time, get the tapes on the millennial kingdom. They're all over the Bible. It has to be David who will be ruling side by side with Jesus Christ. It's amazing what the scriptures have to say. Zechariah, quite a prophet. We've had some time spent with him. I hope you've grasped the vastness of him as well as the depth as we've taken this time to just uh, go through him on Sunday morning in depth and on Sunday night verse by verse. We've got one prophet left. Read Malachi, four chapters. Read it once a day. Read it three times a day. Morning, lunch, and dinner. Okay? By the time we get back next Sunday, you should be able to tell me all about Malachi. Tell me what I miss next Sunday morning. Lord, thank you for your love, your goodness. We love you. We thank you. We pray that you would just continue to deal and work on our hearts, that we would yield to you, Lord. Help us in our arrogance, our pride, our, our blindness, our own self-centeredness at times, Lord, that we would just be broken, falling upon the rock, to be able to be all we can be in you, Lord, unless that rock fall upon us and crush us, Lord. Your desire is to use us, to bless us, to fill us. And so, Lord, I pray for every person here, Lord, that you would just do that to us, Lord, that you'd be glorified. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet. If you believe Jesus Christ is God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, then the Bible says you can be saved if you believe he did that in your place. And if you do, then he will forgive you of all your sins, make a new creature of you, and make you a son or a daughter of God by grace through faith that not of yourself is the gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So if you want to repent of your sins, this is the prayer for you. This is you to the Lord. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.